we begin. All right, ladies and gentlemen, a very formal welcome to our brand new series. This series is called You Be the Judge. And in this series, my friends, you guessed it, you will get a chance to be the judge. This is one of the coolest concepts, one of the coolest series that we've done. I am super stoked about this because we have just an incredible array of questions and legal considerations and ethical considerations to explore over the next six weeks together. All right, but before we jump into the content, let me uh, express my gratitude uh, to our generous core sponsors, Eve and Jake Bogan, Howard and Ellen Feinsand, and Vlada Marina Rabinovich. Thank you so much for helping sponsor the series. Thank you all for being part of the series and for supporting In Town Jewish Academy in all of the ways that you all do. Okay, so on to the content. This course, You Be the Judge, is all about, as I mentioned, it's about looking at real cases. Maybe I didn't mention this. So looking at real cases that came before the courts, both U.S. courts and Jewish courts. So we're going to be comparing and contrasting both U.S. at U.S. law and Jewish law. And we are going to look at some distinctions, um, some uh, different, uh, different takes that the different systems have on a, how to apply the law, how to think about the law, and come away with some, I think, some astounding conclusions about the, um, the foundations of Jewish law. And an appreciation, of course, for Torah and Judaism, as we call it in Yiddish, Yiddishkeit. All right, so this is You Be the Judge. We have six weeks, six cases, six conversations. Today, tonight's conversation is all about true crime. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote an email, I think I sent it out like a week or two ago, and I put in the subject, love true crime, then you'll love this course. And I read that email. When I wrote the email, it sounded great. And then I read it when it came into my inbox. You know, we schedule emails and then it hits my inbox. And I read it, I'm like, love true crime. Who's going to love true, like, love true crime sounds so wrong. Who loves crime? But I meant the genre of true crime, which is a little bit different than loving true crime itself. So what is true crime? What is the genre of true crime? It's looking at cases, looking at real life cases, and, uh, you know, just astounding cases of people committing crimes and trying to get away with it and how the justice system cracked down on it. Do you guys remember the Menendez brothers? Do you guys remember... Um, Lyle, well, what were the names? Kyle, um, who remembers the, the Menendez, the names of the two boys? I'm mute, I'm mute if you do, because I forgot. Lyle and Eric? Lyle and Eric, yeah, could have been. Yeah, Lyle and Eric, yeah, sounds right. Menendez. Yeah, okay, oh, there we go. So the Menendez brothers were young men, I believe 18 and 21, who lived in Southern California. And uh, one night, their parents are murdered in their home. And it turns out that it was the sons who did it. And the, the case centered on, they were brought to trial, and the case was all about, you know, were they acting in self-defense in the sense that the parents were abusing them in some fashion or form, or was it, as the story came, as the prosecutors presented the case, was it simply that they wished to have the inheritance? Which takes me to Pittsburgh. Because there's a case that hit the news very recently in Pittsburgh. For all of, uh, for all of our Pittsburghers here with us, I know, Mom, that, that would be you. Um, so there is a case that hit the news 
uh, just a week or two ago about a dentist, about a dentist whose wife ended up dead. And there are suspicions now that it wasn't exactly the way the husband said it was going to be. And this is going to be our first true crime analysis of the evening. I'm going to play a two-minute video in a moment. But first, let me tell you about the structure of the class and all the classes. We present real cases. I ask you to be the judge. I want you to weigh in on this. I have, for the very first time that I've used this, and I'm sure maybe you've encountered this in other Zooms, I created polls. We're going to actually vote. Yes, you will be the judge to vote on various cases to, 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 um, uh, to, to offer your opinion. And then we're going to look at some Talmudic texts, some Jewish legal considerations, and hopefully walk away with a lot of insight and a lot of thrilling conversation. This is meant to be a very interactive course. So at any time, please jump in. This is about a dialogue. It's about hearing your voice. You be the judge. Okay. I'm going to share with you in just a moment this story. Okay, here we go. I have it dialed up by me. Let me just pull it up for all of you as well. Okay. All right, sit back, relax, and enjoy. That's totally the wrong phraseology, but uh, take a look at this video of a recent case, an ongoing case, a man accused of murder. Hold on one second. Here we go. Can you guys see that video? Yeah, okay. Here it is. It's the hunting trip incident the FBI now says was murder. It happened when a wife on a shooting safari vacation with her husband was believed to have accidentally shot herself. But her friend had suspicions, which she shared with investigators. Now the husband, a dentist, has been arrested and charged with murder. Here's Jim Murray. Hi, I'm Dr. Larry Rudolph. This prominent dentist is accused of taking his wife on an African safari so he could murder her and collect almost $5 million in life insurance. Dr. Larry Rudolph and his late wife, Bianca, were avid big game hunters who traveled the world. Here he is in Pakistan. Once again, Lady Luck smiled on us. We took this great send Ibex. Just fantastic. Bianca Rudolph's life came to a violent end when she and her husband flew to Kafue National Park in Zambia. The second largest wildlife reserve in the world. Bianca's goal was to bag a leopard. On the last day of their two-week trip, a gunshot was heard coming from their cabin. Bianca Rudolph was found dead with a gunshot wound to the chest. According to the criminal complaint, her dentist husband told Zambian police he believed his wife had accidentally shot herself with her 12-gauge shotgun while she was packing up the weapon. The dentist came under suspicion after a U.S. Embassy official said he believed that the distance between the muzzle of the shotgun and Bianca's chest was approximately 6.5 to 8 feet, according to the criminal complaint. If true, it would make an accidental shooting unlikely. The investigation was launched after a friend of Bianca's told the FBI she suspected foul play because Dr. Rudolph was allegedly having an affair with the manager of his dental office outside Pittsburgh. The dentist's alleged mistress reportedly gave him an ultimatum of one year to sell his dental offices and leave Bianca. Look at these insurance payouts that Dr. Rudolph collected. They total $4.8 million. 
Rudolph's attorney calls the charges outrageous, claiming the FBI's manufactured a case against his client. He also says Dr. Rudolph looks forward to proving his innocence at trial. Okay, you guys saw that, right? Did that come through? Yeah, you're able to see that? Okay. Uh, yeah, Three Rivers Dental. Three Rivers Dental. Outside of Pittsburgh. Who would have thought? I, yeah. I've seen these commercials constantly. Yeah. Okay. Constantly. All right. Well, uh, listen, and, and obviously the disclaimer is, and we should be very clear about this disclaimer, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. We ha I have no insider information, obviously no knowledge about this case, and no indication or implication of this man's guilt or innocence for that matter. It's just a case that literally is a week or two old. This is a brand new case that is now in the court system, and there are charges filed against this man accusing him of murdering his wife. Now, what is the motive? My friends, what is the motive? We have two motives here. Jump in. What are the motives? According to the Inside Edition uh, video, what are the motives? The shirt. The shirt. What else? Love and money. Love and money. I mean, literally, probably the two biggest motives of crime, love and money. Are you kidding me? Love and money, literally the playbook. Again, I'm not accused. I'm, I, I have no indicate, no insight, no knowledge about this case. But the, the accusation, at least, is predicated on love and money. My friends, Rabbi? yes, Rabbi? yes. If this wasn't the Habad group, I think we'd use a different word than love. <laughs> That's correct, yeah, but okay. But we're, of course, we're, we're speaking uh, in refined language. So we have love and money. These are, the two, these are the two issues at play here. Tonight's class is going to focus primarily on the money motive and ask a very simple question. Here's the very simple question. You ready for this? Let's say, let's say this dentist is found guilty of murdering his wife. Do you think that he should be able to keep the insurance money? No. <laughs> All right. It, let's just, I don't, I don't have this up as a poll question. What do y'all think? Anybody say yes? Anybody say no? <laughs> a lot of hands. All right. We got a lot of no's over here. Okay. What, I'm, what we're going to do now is we're going to start, our, start the, uh, the case study with a case that's ripped out of the headlines from a long time ago. In fact, this case actually took place in the late 1800s. This is an old-time case in U.S. law, one of the classic old-time U.S. law cases in history. I'm going to share my screen with you, and we are going to read this together and analyze it together as well. Okay, without further ado... We have text number one. I'm going to ask, who should we ask? Judy, would you like to read? Okay. Can a murderer inherit a secular analysis? On August 13, 1880, Francis B. Palmer wrote a will in which he gave small legacies to his two daughters, Mrs. Riggs and Mrs. Preston and left the remainder of his estate to his grandson, Elmer E. Palmer. Then Francis, a widower, remarried and considered changing his will to ensure that his new wife would be cared for should he pass on. 
Elmer, age 16, was unhappy at the prospect of losing his inheritance. So Elmer fatally poisoned his grandfather before the will could be changed. Now Elmer claims the property. Can he have it? Okay, now I just, you know what struck me is again love and money. We also have remarried and now he wants to take care of his new ass. Anyway, so what's happening here is that Elmer, the anical, the grandson, yeah. right, is now poisoning his grandfather before the will is changed, before he is cut out of the will, and now his grandfather, his grandfather dies or is murdered, right? He's fatally poisoned, and, and now Elmer wants to inherit. So the question is, can he have it? So I, I'm going to pull up, I'm going to, okay, one second. So I'm going to pull up the first poll question. Okay, here we go. Here's the first poll question. Um, okay, let's see how this works. Launch, it's launched now. Do you guys see that poll question? Did it pop up? No. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to read the poll question. You guys answer live. Do you think Elmer should inherit his grandfather's estate, the grandfather that he poisoned? Okay, you guys can, we'll give another, uh, I don't know, 20 seconds to chime in. I'm expecting the responses to lean in a certain direction, and I'm not being disappointed yet so far. Feel free to jump in on this. All right. You can only... Oh, ooh. Wow, we have a dissenting opinion. The good news is it's all anonymous, so we don't know who did what. Okay. Okay. All right. We're going to get five, four, three... Two, one, poll closes. 92% say no. 8% says yes. So most people are saying, most people are saying, no, Elmer, the grandson, should not inherit his grandfather's estate. All right, tell me the rationale, please, why he should not inherit the estate. Anyone who voted no or anyone wants to weigh in on this, somebody give me a rationale. Let's go, let's go around the room, so to speak. All right, jump in. Why should he not inherit the estate? You shouldn't, you shouldn't benefit from murdering somebody. Okay, good. No benefiting from a crime from murder. Okay, excellent. Next, what's the next rationale? Give me another rationale. Why else should... What, what, give me some more reasons why... Um, why Elmer should not inherit his grandfather's estate? I think, I think that any nefarious activity, I think it's called, I think to benefit from that, I think that's what, I think that's where the phrase fruit from a poisonous tree comes from. Okay. I think that's correct. So no matter if, if it's murder, theft, whatever, you're not supposed to benefit from a nefarious activity. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, that's similar to what Bert said. Okay, give me, what else? Give me, give me another rationale. The grandfather's intention was to change the will. Good. It, so. Okay, give me more. Give me more about grandfather's intention. Elaborate on that. Yes, his intention was to change the will. And what else can we presume about the grandfather's intention? Maybe. What might he we... He gave it to someone else, not his grandson. Okay, good, good, good. Somebody tell me something else about intent. This is a very important piece. This is what you should know. This is what the court cited, what, what I'm trying to... to, to um, to lead you guys to. Um, Possibly the grandson would get less. Okay, what else? He wants to take care of his wife, his current wife. He wants to leave, take care of her. That's his intent. Good. Um, 
what, could it have been that his grandfather was of sound mind when he, and, and so his intent can't be questioned? Okay, yeah, we could say that. But again, we're looking for rationales why to not give Elmer the estate. Why not give... So the strong rationale, and I'm not disagreeing with anything, we're just discussing it. A very strong rationale is one should not be permitted to inherit the fruits of sin. Right? One should not be permitted to inherit money from a crime. It doesn't make sense. Okay, that's a, that's a solid rationale. Another rationale we heard is that he had intended to change the will. So that was an intention. The counter-argument is, well, he didn't. Okay, I hear that. Um, what else? What else? Well, well, he didn't because he was killed, and it wasn't okay. his fault. Okay, right. So that's going back to the rationale of he wanted... Okay, right. so we're still in the same rationale that he, he had expressed intention to change it. What else? Another rationale why Elmer should not inherit the estate. Anybody have anything else? If not, I'll jump in. What else? Steve, you got something? No? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've got one thing. Go. What is the reason? What is the reason he was going to change the will? Was he the one who wanted to change it, or was it his new wife who wanted him to change it? Okay, good question. Good question. Okay. Let me give you a few other rationales for this. Number one, or it's like three or four, whatever, but another rationale, number one of what I'm going to mention is that we don't want to encourage people to commit crimes, right? If, if, if Elmer is able to inherit the estate, yeah, it's going to incentivize others to commit crimes, acts of murder, even, God forbid, to seek to inherit estates. And that is not something that we want as a society as we, that we want happening. We do not want that to happen. So to de-incentivize, right, to make sure that no one's going to think that this could be a valid thing, a valid approach. We absolutely do not want to give this young man the estate because that would be sending the wrong message. This is different than one should not be permitted to inherit the fruits of sin. This is different. One rationale, the one that was stated by a few of you before, was that if someone commits a crime, they should not profit off a crime. That's one rationale. Another rationale is as a deterrent for others so that others shouldn't choose this path, we want to make sure that this person does not get the estate. And I want to now share a third rationale, which gets into the intent of the grandfather, not what we know about the grandfather having signaled that he was planning on changing the, the will over to, to cut out his grandson or that part of the family, but a little bit of a tweak on that. And that is that perhaps we could say that his grandfather... If he would have known that his grandson, yeah, was the one to poison him to death, he would have never wanted any money to go to him. Is that safe to say? Yes? So maybe we can say, are you with me on this argument? This is a brand new argument that I'm offering. Maybe we could say that, you know, knowing what we know, knowing that this young man, 16-year-old boy, um, man, young man, poisoned his grandfather to death. Loyalain was a horrible thing, right? Knowing what he did, we can safely assume that the grandfather's will, will, desire, will, and testament would not be for this young man to inherit his estate. You with me? Yes? Yes? Okay. Now, what are some arguments for? What are some arguments for? Now, I, we only had, I think we had one vote for 
Does anybody want to jump in why Elmer, whether you voted yes or not, but just even for the sake of, you know, uh, logical arguments and, and, and bantering around ideas, does somebody want to offer some ideas uh, of why Elmer might be permitted to inherit the estate? Somebody want to jump in on this? Abba? Yes. Morris. Yeah, hey, Morris. Okay. The reason why he should inherit, it's by law. That's number one. The state then can encumber any proceeds that he gets because of his actions. So if we're going on two issues here, we're going on the strictly the law, and then you're going on morality. Two different issues in this particular case. Okay, okay, good. So, so you're I, saying believe, I believe, yes, he should have gotten it, but he should have been encumbered by the state once he was found guilty of what he did. Okay, okay. Can I, I, can I add something? Sure, absolutely. He... Elmer was going to inherit something anyway. Like, like I, I mean, I'm agreeing with, with, with. Um, I mean, he was, he wasn't maybe going to inherit. Um, as, uh, I mean, he, the, the grandfather originally said, "You're going to get part of my estate." So, so there it is. Right. It's there. It's already in the will. Oh, okay, good. So that's okay. So that's one argument. Good. So we have a few good arguments. So number one, I'm just going to go reverse yeah. order. So number one, it's in the will. The will is the will. Number two, um, let's differentiate between law and ethics. Okay. Um, another another thing, another argument perhaps is that there are laws, there are punishments for murder, and that doesn't typically include um, confiscating a person's possessions. So why? Should someone under the circumstances, yes, he'll pay the he'll pay the price, so to speak, for the murder. Elmer will, will will be punished for the actual for the act of murder. But why should he also be punished with confiscation, if you will, of property that is rightfully his? These are arguments in support of Elmer. By the way, I need to mention this, and uh, I didn't want to mention this before, but I'll mention this now. Today, as it stands, and for a long time now, there are Slayer's laws, Slayer's laws, that's so-called Slayer's laws, in all fifty states of the United States. And essentially, Slayer's laws say to you know one form or another, basically say the same thing: that someone who killed someone else, someone who murdered someone else, is not permitted to benefit from the crime, whether by um, claiming inheritance, like an estate, or by collecting insurance money. All of that is prohibited by law. Every state has those laws in the book. So, if we talk about the law in the United States, the law is that that inheritance doesn't work. It's not only a moral thing or whatever it is. At this point. There are Slayer's Laws. But in 18, when did this story happen? This story happened in 1880. There weren't Slayer's Laws. Slayer's Laws came as a result of cases like this. That's why these laws were created in each state. But back then, there were no Slayer's Laws. So um, the question is, back then, should they have allowed Elmer to, uh, to receive the estate or not? And this is, this is a valid question. You should know that the court decided then that he should not be allowed to inherit the estate. And you want to know what, this, what the reason cited by the majority opinion? The majority opinion cited the reason why not is because of the assumed will of the grandfather. That was the strongest rationale, the one that I said at the end, the last rationale, why not? That was the, the one that was cited by the majority opinion of that court in New York. This went up to the... Um, which court did it go to? Let me look back at my notes. Yeah, New York State Court of Appeals. And the, 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 state, the, 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 the appeals court ruled, the majority opinion was, that we can safely assume that the will of the grandfather is that 
is would not have been to give his own murderer grandson the estate, and thus we uh, we shift it. Which that's an arguable rationale, right? Because so where does the money go? Does it stay in the family? That's a really good question. I would imagine it would go to maybe other family the members. Yeah, the the daughters, yeah. maybe the wife, or whatever it is. I don't know. We'll have to. The court will have to figure it out. By, yeah. But by, by that rationale, the grandfather wanted to give grandson the money, perhaps to take care of the rest of the family, including the spouse. It's usually the eldest son that gets the 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 you know the the inheritance to take care of the family. At that time, men were the ones that owned possession. It was right. The two daughters that were getting the money. No, but Vlad. To the grandchild. No, so I think what Vlad is saying is that maybe. Maybe it was going to, oh no, he gave small legacies to his two daughters and left a remainder to his grandson. I think Vlad is correct. What Vlad is saying is accurate. If we look back at the case study, and just to benefit everybody, I'm going to pull it back up here so we can all see it in black and white. The case study is very clear that he wrote a will in which he gave small legacies to his daughters and left the remainder of his estate, which, which indicates that it was a lot of money, to his grandson, right? And the, again, the majority opinion as in for the, the, the ruling was that Elmer should not get the estate, should not get anything, because we can assume that Francis B. Palmer would not have willed his estate to his murderer's grandson. That's the ruling. Now, the question on the ground is, so what happens to the money? I guess instead of small legacies, maybe they become larger legacies. And maybe the one who he remarried, right, his new wife, I'm highlighting the various terms here, maybe she gets a piece of the pie even though it wasn't specified. I don't know. We would have to look it up. We'd have to look up that case in all its details to see exactly how the money was allocated if that's recorded somewhere. But the point is the court ruled that the murderer, grandson, Elmer, should not get the estate, and the cited reason was because we presume that that would not be the will of the grandfather. Okay. Rabbi Aaron? Yes. Um, well, I, I don't think he should get anything. But one way of looking at it is, you know, a grandfather has a great deal of love. Obviously, he truly loved that grandson. Right. More than anyone else. Right. Like many people, and it's, it's happened, they, you could kill a grandfather, and if he still had, his, had the choice, he may be saying, if he suddenly came back to life, it's all my fault. I did this. I spoiled him. I made him a bad boy. Right. I still want him. He's my grandson. What am I going to do? Right. He's going to get that percentage. Right. What you're suggesting is the danger of playing mind reader when a person's passed away. You're saying, how do, you're, what you're saying is, how do we know, and you're saying a good argument, you're saying, how do we know that he would have said, I don't want him to, I don't want my grandson to inherit. Maybe he would have said, sure, he should take it. Maybe he would have had son his grandson. Maybe he would have said, it's my fault, it's someone else's fault. It's, how do we know what he would have said? That's why that court's argument is not so compelling to every legal mind. Honestly, what you're saying is exactly what I was about to say. The counter-argument against the ruling, again, that's that was the court. The New York State of uh, uh, Court of Appeals ruled in 18-whatever it was, late 1800s, that the, Elmer does not get the inheritance because his grandfather would not have wanted him to get it. The counter-argument is, how do you know? How do you know? Did you ask him? Oh, no, no, we can assume. Can you really? I mean, even if it's 99% assumption, it's not 100%, how do you know? Right? And I think Steve is making an argument. I heard Bert, I, Bert, I heard you say not in our family, right? Not happening here. But, but I, yeah. Um, 
Right. Yeah, right. Not my family. Not my family. As somebody would say, maybe over my dead body, right? But not literally. But the point is like this. The point is that once the court decides what people would have wanted, slippery slope area, which is the counter argument to that court's ruling. So thus, we are going to examine this from the perspective of Jewish law because, look, the way it stands today, Slayer's laws, we don't have to get into intent. The law now says we're done. If someone commits a crime, if someone commits a murder, they don't get the inheritance, they don't get the insurance money garnished. If this guy from Pittsburgh or the, the dentist, right, Three Rivers Dental Practice, whatever, if this guy gets convicted of murdering his wife in Africa, guess what happens to that $4.87 million? It's going back. I don't know where it's going, but he's not able to keep it because Slayer's Laws prevent you from getting it. But in the 1800s, there were no Slayer's Laws. The courts had to come up with their own rationale. The court said, we can assume that the grandfather would not have wanted it to, upon which we could say, how do you know? So let's look at this from a Jewish perspective. Let's look at this from a perspective of Jewish law. And we're going to get into, well, give me one second, let me finish my, my quick intro and then I'm going to get to you and then we're going to do the, do the text. We're going to look at case studies and precedent in Judaism, in scripture, in the Jewish Bible, as they say, and in the Talmud. And we're going to walk away. We're going to be exposed to some absolutely um, fascinating concepts and then try to piece together this idea from a Jewish perspective. It's going to be thrilling. So hang on. So far, all we've done is the opening video case, the written case study, I, sh I told you the verdict, but we were a little bit uh, questioning the, the rationale behind the verdict. All right, Bert, jump in. I was going to say not only that, but he can't benefit from a book or a movie. Ah, oh, good. <laughs> right? People try to benefit. Good point. Good point. Right? It's like, okay, well, I could sell the rights to my story and make uh, a killing. I gavald all these puns. Anyway, the um, right, that is not... Nish, Did you repeat that? Nish Kasher. Bert said uh, one of the prohibitions against the murderer profiting off of the murder is about the writing a book about it or the movie rights, which I don't know. I haven't looked it up, but I, I, I would assume it sounds reasonable that that's the case without knowing what's on the books from uh, um, what's, what's on, you know, what's, on, what's in each, uh, each, uh, each state by state. Maybe that is. Maybe that's. I learned that from Watergate. Because all those gangsters wrote books, and they weren't allowed to benefit from it. Uh-huh. Interesting. All the men, all those guys, they wrote books, and they weren't allowed to benefit. They weren't allowed to benefit. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. Now, let's get into some Jewish sources. But first, a case study. This happened, this case happened in 1958 in Israel, and it went in front of a Bet-Din, a court of Jewish law. This is a shocking true crime case that happened in the Holy Land. This will shock you. I'm going to pull up the screen and uh, let's read this inside. All right, let's ask, who are we going to ask to read this? Let us ask um, Sarah. Sarah, will you please read case, one, case two, the Talmudic legal analysis? No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I still have the same one. Yeah, my bad. I'm like, why does it say case one? Because I didn't, I didn't advance the, uh, the screen. Here we go, case number two. My screen still says case one in August. Oh, does it? August 13th, 1880. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah well, mine too. Yeah. Hold on one second, one second, one second. Let me try this again. 
All right, we're going to get this to work. Here we go. Three, two, one. All right, better? Yes. Okay. Yes, two. Today's newspaper, Tevit 28-57-18, let me minimize that, reported a verdict by the judge, Judge Yitzhak Kistira regarding a husband who murdered his wife after learning about her affair with another man. The husband now sought the inheritance of the estate of his, vic of, of his victim. The verdict banned the husband from the inheritance on the grounds that one should not be allowed to benefit from a crime. The judge remarked that he did not find any source in other legal systems who discussed this question. However, he found a basis for this verdict in the Ottoman scroll, which states clearly that a murderer cannot inherit property from his victim. As I read this report, I pondered this question from a Talmud Talmudic perspective. How would the Jewish laws of inheritance judge this incident. So here we have, and I, I misspoke before, this case did not come before the Bet-Din, but we have a rabbi on a Bet-Din, a, a leading rabbinic figure who's pondering a true crime case in Israel. Again, the date is 28 Tevet 5718, which is either 1957 or 1958. It depends if it's December or January. Could go either way. Probably January at that point. So it's probably 1958. So let's just quickly review the case. There's a husband. Okay. Again, love and, mur love and murder. Same uh, love and money. Same, same issue over here. So we have a husband, right, who murders his wife after learning that she is having an affair, and now he wants to inherit the estate of his victim, i.e. his wife. He wants to inherit her estate. So he murders her, and now he wants to inherit the estate. So the verdict in the Israeli courts banned the husband from the inheritance. Why? Because one should not be allowed to benefit from a crime straight up. That's it. We don't want to get, not about intent, no intent. It's just, if you committed a crime, you should not benefit. And the judge says, I don't know, you know, there's no clear legal precedent, but there's an Ottoman scroll that says something along these lines. Anyway, but now this rabbi, Rabbi Yeshua Ehrenberg, is, uh, is pondering this. He's pondering. He's thinking about, right, he was the head of the rabbinical court in Tel Aviv. If you look in the bio here on the left side, right, with my big arrow over there, head of rabbinical court in Tel Aviv. He was the head of a Betin. That's a pretty big deal. He was the head of the Betin in Tel Aviv at that time in the 1950s. And so he's wondering, what, is the, what are the Jewish uh, considerations here? What would Jewish law say? What would halacha say about this? Right? I mean, it makes, logically it makes sense. We don't want somebody profiting off of a crime. It makes sense. But... Is that halacha? Is that truly Jewish law? So to explore this, give me a second. Okay, yeah, to explore this, from a Jewish perspective, we are going to cite a story from the book of Kings. Okay, the book of Kings is one of, in Hebrew, known as the book of Malachim, book of uh, Kings. The book of Kings is one of the 24 Jewish holy books of Scripture. It's one of the 24 holy works of Scripture, and it contains a story, the stories of the Jewish kings throughout the, uh, throughout the years of the Jewish monarchy. There's a lot of drama and a lot of really terrible stories. One of the worst kings, Jewish kings, that's recorded in the book of Kings is a, named, is a fellow named Achav. You may know his English name, Ahab. He was married to a woman, the queen. Her name was Izevel. You may know her as Jezebel. We're going to use the Hebrew names because why not? 
We're amongst friends. So we have Achav and Izevel, Ahab and Jezebel. They were Jewish king. They, they were king of the Jewish people, a, a, a Jewish king and, and, and his wife. They were steeped in idol worship. They were just terrible, terribly corrupt and murderous to boot. Lot of lot of crime happening by the king and the queen. So I'm going to read this is a very long text. I'm going to read it, throw in a little bit of commentary in here as we go along. You may be familiar with the story. You may not be familiar with the story. Either way, it's, uh, it's going to be relevant to our topic tonight about inheriting the fruit of sin. Okay? Can you guys see as I scroll? Is it, are you seeing me scroll? Um, is it showing up? Yes? Yeah. No? So case, case two is still up. Case two is still up. Okay. All right. So I'm not sure exactly what's, uh, what's going on with this, but it is what it is. We'll, uh, we'll figure it out. Okay. Can you see now? Is it moving as I scroll? Okay, now it's, it's moving. not scrolling, but we can see that. Not scrolling. Okay. Well, listen, we're going to have to go into the next page. So if it doesn't scroll eventually, then I'm going to have to stop share, reshare for each page, which is fine. I'm, I'm prepared to do that. So just, uh, just keep me up to date as to how it's going. Okay? All right, here we go. Um, text number, this is, uh, what are we? This is text number one, actually, because we had case studies as the first text. And it was after these happenings that Navot, or Navot, sorry, the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, next to the palace of Ahav, Ahab, the king of Samaria. And Ahav spoke to Navot, saying, Give me your vineyard, and I will have it for a vegetable garden, since... Can you guys see that next page or not? No. No. All right, since... It is near my house, and I will give you, instead of it, a vineyard which is better than it. If it pleases you, I will give you money it's worth. Let me just explain what happened here. Basically, this fellow named Navot, Navot, he has a vineyard. He has a vineyard next to Achav's palace, the king's palace. And the king says to his neighbor, give me your vineyard. I want your vineyard. I'll give you another vineyard somewhere else. Or I'll pay you for your vineyard. Either way, I want your vineyard. It's next door. I want it. All right. And Navot said to Achav, Nope, no can do, buckaroo. The Lord forbids me to give the inheritance of my forefathers to you. Sorry, I can't. It's my ancestral property. The way it worked in ancient Israel is that people were supposed to keep their property, and that's it. So he says to him, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And Achav, verse 4, Achav came to his house sad and upset. Because of the matter that Navot the Jezreelite had spoken to him, and said, I will not give you the inheritance of my forefathers. He was very upset. And you know what? Like a little kid, he, uh, he's, he pouted and he, uh, he, he threw a fit. He lay in his bed, turned away his face, and did not eat bread. <laughs> sounds right? I mean, sounds like a, a, bit of a, a bit of a protest. A protest. Guys, I, I need you to be open with me. Tell me when you can no longer see the text, and I'm going to reshare, okay? Can you guys still see the text? Verse 5. Yes? Just three, just three lines, then it's blank. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Again, we're doing this together. This is, this is how, we, how we roll, okay? Verse 5. And Izevel, the Rebetzin, Izevel, Jezebel, his wife, came to him and spoke to him, for what is this? That your spirit has left you and you do not eat bread. 
Yeah, what's going on? What's wrong? He spoke to her, for I've spoken to Navo, the Jezreelite, and I've said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or if you wish, I will give you a vineyard instead of it. And he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Right? I asked him for his vineyard. He said, no. So that's it. Now I'm broken. Now I'm crying. I'm not eating. I have no appetite. And Izevel's wife said to him, do you now exercise kingly power over Israel? Right? Aren't you the king? What are you? What are you pouting in your bed? What are you kicking and screaming and throwing a fit? You're the king. Come on, hubby, you're the king. Arise and eat bread and let your heart be merry. I will give you Navot the Jezreelite's vineyard. Leave it up to me. And she wrote letters, listen to this, and she wrote letters in Achav's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the officials who were in his city who sat with Navot. What were the letters saying? And she wrote letters saying, proclaim a fast and place Navot in the forefront of the people. Okay, let's continue. That's, that's the last line. Yeah, 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 I got it. Okay, thank you. Here we go. And set up two wicked men opposite him, and they will testify against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king, and they shall remove him and stone him, and he will die. Basically, have two witnesses falsely accuse Navot, the neighbor, of blasphemy and um, treason, right, cursing God and cursing the king, and that is punishable by death. They'll kill him, they'll, they'll capital punishment, you know, they'll apply capital punishment, and then he will die, and then you can do whatever you want. It's your vineyard. Let's continue. And the men of his city did, the elders and the officers that dwelled in the city, as Isabel had sent them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They, they followed the plan. They proclaimed the fast, and they sat in a vote at the head of the people. And the two wicked men came and sat opposite him. And the wicked man testified against Navot in front of the people, saying, Navot cursed God and the king. And they took him out of the city and stoned him with stones, and he died. How are we doing with, uh, with, uh, with the text? We're still good? Just 14, then 15, and just one line. Okay. All right. Here we go. Oh, maybe this is it. Maybe that's why. It, is it scrolling now when I do this? Is it scrolling? Yes, yes. Ah, look at that. Look at my error. I still have it optimized for video. It doesn't let you move it when it's optimized for video. This is not a... It's a miracle. It's basically a miracle. <laughs> and or user error. Anyway, either way, either, it's, a, it's a miracle and it's my mistake. Okay, so now we can all breathe a little easier and follow along together. So... Um, uh, yeah, so they took him out, and they stoned him, and he died, and they sent to Izevel, saying, Navot has been stoned, and he has died. That's it. He's done. And it was when Izevel heard that Navot was stoned, and that he had died, that Izevel said to Achav, to her husband, get up, and take possession of the vineyard of Navot the, Je of Navot the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Navot is not living but dead. I told you I would take care of it. Done. I've taken care of it. And it was... As Achav heard that Navot had died, that Achav got up to go down to the vineyard of Navot, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. So I'm going to pause here for a moment. Pause here. Let's take stock of the story. Right? What happened in this story? So far, I mean, it's, it's horrific. So the king goes to the neighbor, give me your vineyard. The neighbor says, no. The king pouts. His wife says, I'll take care of it. She sends letters to the elders of the city. Proclaim a fast. In other words, make sure everyone knows it's a very serious matter. And then at the fast, well, why are we fasting? Because something's about to happen, something very serious. And then 
we're going to throw the accusation. Two witnesses will come and say that Navot, the neighbor, cursed God and the king, and then he'll be killed. And so it happens, and he is stoned to death. They apply capital punishment. He's killed for his alleged crime. And the word gets back to um, Izebel, the queen Jezebel. She tells her husband, Ahav, Ahab, that now the vineyard is yours. All good. It's all good. Now, verse 17. And the word of the Lord came to Elioah Tishbi, Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Okay, you know Elio, Elijah the prophet, right, of Seder fame. It comes to every Seder, a cup of Elijah. Right? Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu Hatishbi. That's where we get it from. Elio Hatishbi. Right? So God comes to Elio Hatishbi and says the following. Verse 18. Arise and go down toward Achav, the king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in Navot's vineyard, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, So said the Lord, Have you murdered and also inherited? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus said the Lord, In the place that the dogs have licked the blood of Navot, shall the dogs lick your blood, even yours. Wow. God says to Elioah Navi, Elijah the prophet, Go down to that vineyard, find Achav the king, and you tell him how um, uh, the Hebrew is, Harachatzta vegam yarashta. You murdered, and now you're going to inherit. Oh, you're going to end up dead with the dogs licking your blood, just like what happened with the neighbor with Navot. That is the end of the story. I want to focus on this line, Harachatzta vegam yarashta. Sorry, Harachatzta. I'm pronouncing wrong. Harachatzta vegam yarashta. Have you murdered and also inherited? What, is that, what does that phrase mean to you? That phrase, have you murdered and also inherited? What does that mean to you? What is God saying should be said to Achav the king? What's, have you murdered and benefited from the murder? Okay. Does that imply that he did inherit or he did not inherit? He did. He did. Why did he? Why, well, it, 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 so you could read it two ways. You could read it like God saying, you know, not going to happen. Or, how dare this have happened? Right? It could be read in two different ways. You with me on this? A very subtle distinction. One way is saying, you think you're going to murder and also inherit, not going to happen. That's one understanding of it. Or, you murdered and now you're inheriting. I don't like this. You're going to end up dead. There's two. But that implies, the second way implies that he actually did inherit. But I have another question. What kind of business is it that, what does it mean that he inherited? How do you inherit the neighbor's field? It's not called inheriting. What is it called? Stealing. Huh? Stealing. Yeah. Possessing it. Why inheriting it? So to this, the Talmud says something fascinating. Okay? The Talmud says, and, I, and before we read it inside, I'm going to tell you the following. The Talmud says that they were actually related. They weren't just neighbors. They were related. How were they related? We're going to see in a moment. But the implication is going to be that when Navot, the neighbor, gets killed, right, for that fake crime that he allegedly committed, right, for that uh, fake accusation of, of heresy and treason. So the next in kin, right, the next, yeah, the next in line was Achav the king. 
So hence it is a Yerusha, it's inheritance, it's an estate inheritance. It's not just the king repossessing it, it's not a neighbor taking it, it's not a land grab, it's straight up a Yerusha, it's straight up an inheritance. Now, where do we see this? How do we know this? The Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin. Straight, it's classic Talmudic piece. I'm going to read it inside. All right, here we go. Navot, all right, you ready? ready for this? Navot, the neighbor, was the king's cousin. And therefore, Achav, the king, was his legitimate heir. The Talmud asks, how is this possible? For Navot had many sons. So what do you mean the king the cousin was the, was the heir. He had sons. Nope, not anymore. The king slew both him and his sons. As it is written elsewhere in the book of Kings, surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Navot and the blood of his sons. They not only killed Navot for heresy and treason, they also killed his sons. And the, they wiped out the whole family. That whole family they wiped out. In that episode, we didn't read it. It was not in the original. It's not the, all the details aren't in that original story, as in, in the in the first book of Kings. But in the second book of Kings, it it it's like FYI, they not only murdered Navot, they murdered his sons also, or they killed his sons also. And 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 what that means for you and I is the following. So there's Achav, the king. Next door is Navot, the neighbor. Navot has the vineyard that the king wants. The king and queen, I mean, Ezevel, Jezebel really orchestrated this. So she has Navot murdered along with his sons. Who's the next in line? The cousin, right? The cousin's next in line. The cousin, the king. The king, the cousin, Achav. Hence the term, Haratzachta v'gam yirashta. You, you, you murdered and, and, and now you inherited Right? God's like, I don't like that, but it was an inheritance. If we pause it, huh? Yeah. I have a question. Sure. Um, what, why it seems like Jezebel's getting off the hook. Why isn't she killed? Yeah, I also have that question. I don't think she was being left off the hook, but I think that, you know, he was the one who pushed it. He wanted it. He pouted over it and whatever was done for him. So he gets the brunt. She was also, she had, she had to face the music of her own also. I mean, don't worry. She wasn't uh, scot-free from this either. We're just isolating, though, for the context of, of, the, of the inheritance piece of it. Because we're seeing here, right? And I actually want to pull up a poll question. Okay, you ready? Here's the poll question. Um, based on the way I've described the verse... Take a look at this question on your screen. It should have popped up. Based on the story of King Achav and the vineyard, does Jewish law allow a murderer to inherit their victim's estate? What would you say? If we read, is God saying, how could you possibly inherit? You know, how dare you inherit when, um, when, uh, when, when you're murdered, right? What is the implication of that? What is the implication of that statement? Let's go. Take a vote. Right? Based on the story that we just read, does Jewish law allow for the murderer to inherit their victim's estate? Yes or no? All right, I'm going to give another 10 seconds. Jump in on this. Jump in on this. All right, five, four, three, two, one. We have 80% saying no, 20% saying yes. My friends, um, what do you think? For those that said no, why do you say no? 
based on the story. I didn't say no. God said no. What did God say? Good. What did God say? He said you can't benefit from this. He sent Ellie to uh, tell him. Okay. Good. 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 Who said yes? And not and not who said yes. If you said yes, why did you say yes? I because it says you and he inherited. Good. Yeah. Right. It says. He, he paid a price for it. Good. Right. And that's the, the way. Literal reading is. Correct. means God is saying, I'm appalled. I'm appalled that you murdered and you inherited. I will make sure that you end up, your blood ends up being licked by the dogs. God is so incensed by what happened. That's the reading. Which means that in truth, he did inherit the estate, the vineyard. He did inherit, which is why God is upset that you murdered and you inherited. That's it. You're done. That's what God is saying. You're done because you inherited the, what, not only you committed this crime or this crime was committed on your behalf, but you also inherited it. Forget it. You're out. This is the way the commentaries understand it, which reveals a shocking truth in Jewish law. And that is that a murderer Based on this precedent and other sources, a murderer can inherit the estate. And, and hold on, hold your judgment for a second. Let's read this inside. Let's read this inside. Text number three. This is from the Arsameach, Rabbi Meir Simcha HaKohen. Text number three. It is clear that a, that a murderer is entitled to the inheritance of his victim. As we see from Achav, who inherited from his cousin, despite the fact that Achav knew that he killed Navot unjustly, right? Even though Navot was killed unjustly, right? Um, his wife set it up, but he was also privy to the, to the plot. It was an unjust killing. He was a party to the murder, was Achav, and yet he inherited it. And again, I understand the confusion or the, the lack of clarity in this text, because again, God's message is, have you murdered and also inherited? That you can read that in two ways. But you, one way is saying, you're, no way you're going to inherit. Another, well, I mean, both really are saying that. But one way is saying, legally, you do not inherit. But the other way is saying, you did legally inherit it. But I'm going to make sure that you end up paying the ultimate price for that and end up deceased. That is really the, the way it's understood in Jewish law. And that's the way the Talmud understands it. Because the Talmud is trying to figure out why he did inherit it. And the Talmud says, because he was a cousin. From this, it's clear. Again, text three, it's clear that the murderer is entitled to the inheritance of his victim. Now, that doesn't mean we're very happy about this. That doesn't mean that God is happy about this. But in the laws of inheritance, that's the law. The law is that the murderer is entitled to the inheritance of his victim. Now, we haven't explained this. We haven't explained this. And this Does that runs... mean that you believe here when land has to stay within a family? Say it one more time. Does, I don't know. how Every so many years, land goes back to the original... Family. Every 50 years. Yeah, you're right. The Jubilee year. Every 50 years. Yes. So that's the first law that that land needed to stay in the family. We don't have to like it, but... Look, it I mean, that's, again, that's, that's, that's about the land itself in the Jubilee year. But let's focus on the murder and the inheritance for a second. I mean, that's like the big, the big story here is about the murder and the inheritance, right? Rabbi, I mean, yes. I don't want to interpret what God said. But... but but <laughs> he said you inherited maybe on paper like a, like his will but you're not getting it now I, un I understand that I understand that reading of it but the way the Talmud understands it 
Because the Talmud is trying to figure out the inheritance. And the way the commentaries understand it is that there was a legal inheritance and God is outraged at what just happened with the inheritance. And God says, well, then I'm going to take care of matters. Then I'm taking matters into my own hand. That's essentially the way it's understood. And I understand there's another way to, there's another way to read it. I'm with you on that. And that way to read it, which I think is your intuitive way of reading it, is to say God is telling him, you are not going to inherit that. You think you're going to inherit it. You might want to inherit it. That was your plan. You're not going to. I, I understand that. But that's clearly not the way the commentaries and the halachic codifiers read it. Haratzachta v'gamirashta means, according to the commentaries, according to the sages, that God is saying, you murdered and then you inherited, I am going to take care of business and make sure you never get to enjoy that vineyard. That's, but, but legally, he inherited it. Now, again, we have not explained the rationale behind it because we had, we had a lot of conversation about why we... I think most of us, all of us believe, most of us believe that this fellow, that the murderer, a murderer should not inherit the, uh, the estate of the, of the victim. And yet here it seems like based on biblical precedent and Talmudic law and rabbinic law, uh, or, or at least, uh, um, yeah, a, a rabbinic understanding of it, that indeed there is an inheritance here. We're, I'm going to give a rationale soon. What I'm trying to say is I know it sounds very peculiar. I'm going to explain this in a, in a few moments based on Jewish law. But first, I need to present a dissenting opinion. The Ar Sameach is one opinion, and then we have another opinion. Okay, take a look at this one. This is going to be the Dvar Yeshua. Take a look at your screen. I'm going to read this as well. Text number four. Okay, this is um, another scholar, the Dvar Yeshua. He says, I disagree with Rabbi Meir Simcha's interpretation. Who says that Achav inherited the vineyard legally? Perhaps if the courts had investigated the matter and found that Navot was killed at Achav's behest, they would have suspended Achav's ownership, uh, ownership rights. It is only because everyone thought that Navot was justly killed that Achav was able to claim the inheritance through the channels of law. Had the courts known the truth, they would never have granted the vineyard to him. As for Achav himself, who knew that Navot was innocent, he had no qualms about stealing property, just as he had no qualms about killing Navot. The fact that the text uses the word inherit to describe Achav's claim to the property shows that, in fact, the mechanism of inheritance is in force here, according to the basic principles of inheritance as defined in the Torah. This is going to be a very foundational line. Again, I'm going to read that again from the beginning of that paragraph. The fact that the text uses the word inherit to describe Achav's claim to the property shows that, in fact, the mechanism of inheritance is in force here according to the basic principles of inheritance as defined in the, in, in, in the Torah. However, if the courts would have been able to verify the truth, then by rabbinic fiat, the property would have then been seized from Achav in order to prevent one from benefiting from a crime. But because there was no way of proving the falsehood of the charge against Navot, Achav did indeed inherit the vineyard, and it was not theft. So let me explain the two opinions. Okay, we have two opinions. The first opinion is the Arsameach. The second opinion is the, is the Dvar Yeshua. Okay, the Arsameach says as follows. Based on the story in Scripture, the story of Achav and the vineyard, Jezebel, Achav, Izevel, Navot, based on that story, and God's proclamation, you killed and then you inherited, I'm taking care of business, that indicates, according to the Arsameach, that there was an inheritance, he got the property, he got the vineyard, God's going to take him out, but he got the vineyard. Someone who murders 
inherits the estate. The dissenting opinion says the only reason he got this, the estate is because they didn't know what happened. Had they known what, what would have happened, the courts, the rabbis, the courts would have stopped the king from getting the, the, the vineyard. They would have said no, right? So even though biblically, this is what, what was in the italicized text, even though biblically, based on Torah law, he would indeed nonetheless inherit the vineyard by rabbinic fiat. In other words, the, the rabbis would have taken it away from him. They would have uh, seized the property of the vineyard because of the murder. So what this leaves us is with a very interesting um, position in Jewish law. Okay, take a look. Take a look at this next, this learning exercise. And we're going to do this together. Okay, we're going to compare the opinions of Ar Sameach and Devar Yeshua in the two cases. And let's do this together. Okay, analysis of Ahav in the vineyard. Okay. Can, question number one, can Achav inherit the vineyard? Can he legally inherit the vineyard? According to Arsameach, what's the answer? Yes. According to Dvar Yeshua, what's the answer? The answer is yes also. The answer is yes in both. Both say yes. This means from biblical law, in other words, legally, right? Can Achav inherit the vineyard? The answer is yes. In Jewish law, yes. Right? But will the courts confiscate the vineyard from Achav if they, wouldn't, if they would know about it, if they would find out about it? Would the courts confiscate it? According to the first opinion of Sameach, what does he say? No. No, he, he keeps the vineyard. The Yeshua says, yes, it's confiscated. Okay, this is, and again, I understand this is a little bit, a little bit technical here, but it's very important. It's very important to understand the contours of Jewish law and these two opinions. These are two major opinions in rabbinic law um, as to what the rabbinic law is, in fact, in such a case. Again, it's not a far-fetched case. It's not Achav in the vineyard. It's a case that is literally repeating itself throughout history as of even a week or two ago with this dentist from outside of Pittsburgh. This is literally real life. Unfortunately, horrifically, it's real life. People murdering and then trying to inherit. And the question, we know what Slayer's laws are. We know what the court ruled in 1880. We know that. The question is, what's Jewish law? And it's clear from both the Arsameach and the Dvar Yeshua, right, these giant of opinions, it's clear that can the murderer inherit from the victim? The answer is yes. The only question is, will the courts confiscate it subsequently? And one opinion says, no, they're not going to confiscate it. The other opinion says, yes. But what's clear is that there is the concept of inheritance even when we're dealing with the murderer and the victim. So now I'm going to stop sharing and put up a poll. This is a confirmation poll. In other words, this poll is not so much like you be the judge, but more of, I want to make sure that this is making sense. Okay. So here we go, or that we're all on the same page at least. Okay, poll question number one. According to Arsameach, that's the first opinion, will the rabbinic court confiscate the estate from the murderer? Right, the first opinion. Will they confiscate the estate from the murderer? Again, from the Torah, from biblical law, he gets the estate. Will they confiscate it? No, the answer is no. Right, according to Arsameach, no, he gets to keep it. He murdered and he gets to keep it. It's crazy. But that's, okay. Next, according to Dvar Yeshua, second question, will the rabbinic court confiscate the estate from the murderer? And what does he say? You guys are right. Uh, everyone who chimed in here is correct. The answer is yes. Dvar Yeshua says it is confiscated. But that's only the rabbinic 
court's confiscation, but conceptually, theoretically, um, the estate remains, sorry, there is the concept of inheritance. And this raises the massive question that everybody is wondering. And I said it before, and you're wondering it, and you're thinking to yourself, is Jewish law meshuga? What kind of crazy system is this? What is your, Halacha says, Jewish law says, biblical law says, Torah law says, that a murderer inherits the estate of the victim? You have Achav and Izevel killing their neighbor cousin, right? Murdering him in cold blood. You know, fake charges, false prosecution, totally made up story, and they inherit the vineyard? Are you, are you kidding me? Right? This guy, Elmer, Elmer in the case study from, eight, from the 1800s in New York, this Elmer fellow, right? He should go inherit his grandfather's estate when he murdered, when he poisoned him to death. This felt right? The Menendez brothers, they should inherit the estate? You kidding? If this guy, if this dentist is, is, is convicted of murder, he should be able to collect, well, I guess collect, no, forget the insurance money. We gotta keep it, we're gonna keep it with inheritance. H how do we understand this? According to Jewish law, there's a, still an inheritance that's collected. It makes no sense, Meshuggah. In other words, what, the, what, what, what U.S. law says, Right? Makes sense. Slayer's laws. You, you committed a crime. That's it. You can't, you can't benefit from it. How do we understand Jewish law? How do we understand it? There, there's, only, there's one opinion that says that after the inheritance, the court's going to come and take it away. But it still means that there was an inheritance. Right? It's ludicrous. It sounds, mature. it sounds crazy. What's going on here? The essence. Sorry? The essence... Explain. Oh, yeah, yeah. What you're saying is fact and truth. And once those two facts are found, then the decision can be made. And that's it. The court, the court didn't know that he killed him. So if he knew he killed him, he wouldn't have. Oh, so that's, that's the second opinion. That's the Dvar Yeshua. But Dvar, even the Dvar Yeshua says that even once the facts come out, the courts are going to take it away from him but that means it's more of a confiscation of property than a, let's say they knew it from the beginning. It would still be this weird situation where he does inherit it, but then the courts, step one, inheritance. Step two, the courts pull it away. The courts can't block the inheritance. They can only confiscate property under the guise of Bezdin Hefker Bezdin, which means that a Bezdin or a Betdin, a court, has the ability to confiscate property. That's one of the powers given to a rabbinic court and other courts as well. A court can confiscate property. But it's still his property. It's still his inheritance. And again, it's... The court. Say it again. God trumps the court. Okay. But he already the, declared that he's going to die a horrible death and the dogs are like his blood. Okay, right. But he still gets the inheritance. That's what I'm saying. He's going to lose it. Okay, listen. I... I'll never I, get a chance to spend it. Look, good. I, I, by the way, I agree with everything you're saying. But what we're about to get to is mind-blowing. Because we're about to get to the Jewish understanding of what inheritance is. And it's completely different than the way we traditionally understand inheritance. The way we understand it in, in our society, secular society, U.S. society, and U.S. law. It's a completely different perspective. And it has a lot of ramifications. So here... Yeah, mom, jump in. Yeah, I was just going to say that inheritance comes from God. 
the land is belongs to God. It's not yours, his. The, God distributed it. Okay, so. so okay, okay, good. So God but, can understand. Right, right, good, good, good. But, but the question is, all right, but leaving God aside for a moment, the question is, what is, how, how do we understand these laws of inheritance? So, so in Jewish law, Jewish law looks at inheritance in a very different way than secular law. Jewish law calls inheritance nachala. Nachla means inheritance. Nachla is also related to the word nachal, which means a river. So let's understand what is the river understanding of inheritance versus the United States, the U.S. perspective on inheritance. Okay? So here we go. In the United States, inheritance is deemed to be the will of an individual who wills something to the inheritor, right? So, so the one who's giving or bequeathing, if you will, the estate, right? They have a will. They write a will. They verbalize a will. Or we assume a will, as the court did in the 1800s. They assumed a will of the grandfather, right? There's a will. And then the will is what triggers the inheritance, that passing from one to the other. In the case of an absence of will, the courts will literally, right, play mind reader and say, well, we assume that even though there wasn't a will, that the will, the desire, the intent of the bequeather is that it should go to the relative or the next of kin or to the state, whatever it is, right? So that's, that, it's all about the will. It's all about the mindset. So ownership in general, this is a general notion. Ownership is all about, it's almost like something that the law provides for. The law creates ownership. So the law says, you own it, we're going we're gonna to create ownership, and then, you know, where you decide it should go, that's where it should go. In Judaism, it's very different. The law doesn't create ownership, it responds to ownership. It responds to a, a natural reality called ownership. And the same thing is true with inheritance. There is a natural process, according to the Jewish perspective, by which parents naturally are, 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 are um, succeeded by their children. Parents, right, and children, grandparents and grandchildren, etc. There's a natural succession that happens. There's a natural flow. There doesn't need to be intent or will. There doesn't need to be any intent or will for that bequeathing, for that inheritance to happen. It is something as natural, as I said before, a river that flows, a river that flows downstream, a nachal, a nachal river that flows downstream is the same as a nachala, as an inheritance. It flows downstream from parent to child or from grandparent to parent to child. It just flows down through the generations. There's a natural flow. And it's an unbroken flow. It just naturally goes from one generation to the other. It's not about will. It's not about intent. In fact, and I'm about to blow your mind, perhaps. In fact, Jewish law says that one is not permitted to block the flow. Are you with me? Can you cut? Well, that's what I meant by God. Yeah, Right. It's more of like a natural, right? Okay. It's more of a natural, right? It's more of a natural thing. So what, what's go, so in Jewish law, one is actually not allowed. Listen to this. One is actually not allowed to cut a child out of a will. 
It's not permitted to cut a child out of a will. If you say, I'm, I'm not going to give to this child, it doesn't, in Jewish law, it doesn't have legal weight. Now, okay, here, here's the way around that, just in case you want to know, is you can say, I'm giving all of it to one child. That you can say. Or all of it to two children. But you can't cut out someone. Are you with me? The distinction? You can't say, I'm, st- I, I'm not going to give to so-and-so, a, 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 descend, a, a descendant. You can't say that. It's not legally valid. What you can say is that it's, it's going to flow to the other children first and thus not allow for it to go. So let's say the estate is, let's just say the estate is $100,000, right? So one can say 50000 to this child, 50000 to that child, or what about the other child? Nothing left. The waters flowed and it didn't have, there was no more water to flow. That's fine. But to cut out someone, you can't cut out. Why can't you cut out? Because there's a natural flow. Now, what if, uh, I, I, don't, I feel like I'm dispensing um, like, uh, you know, like legal advice here. I'm just saying this is Jewish, Jewish legalities. So what if somebody got, you know, I, unfortunately, whatever it is, does, has children but doesn't want to give it to the children, right? They can't stop it. They can't, you cannot write in a will. It's not, it's not legally valid. The Besden will rip it up. If somebody says in their will, I'm, I'm not going to give to my children. Boom, ripped up. What, what's the way around it? I, I feel bad saying this, you know, giving outs here. The way around it is to write a document that says, one minute before my death, I'm gifting my entire estate to another party, not leaving anything therefore left to go to the kids. But one cannot cut out a child from, from, from a will. Are you with me on this? Does this make sense what I'm saying? Yes. Why? Because a will, an inheritance, is a natural flow. It flows downward. It naturally flows. You can't stop it. Again, if you, you're allowed to give a gift. So if you give it away, it's gone. But you can't, once the person passes away, it naturally flows to the children, to the descendants, or the next of kin, however you define next of kin. Right? It naturally flows. Okay. Um, Mark, do you have a question or a comment? I do have a question. Yeah, jump in. It occurs to me that for a will to be valid, or any contract, it takes two witnesses. I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. Yes, correct. I know that in Jewish law, for someone to be declared a murderer, and for them to be convicted with the death penalty, it takes two witnesses. Yes. Now, what happened, for example, I'm I'm going to jump in the gun, what happened, for example, in Africa is circumstantial. There are correct. two witnesses. Correct. So lacking two witnesses, can you overrule those instruments which had them? In other words, can you overrule a will which had two witnesses? Can you overrule? Excellent that, question. question. Excellent question. Excellent question. So without getting, you're asking a question that's a big question without getting into all the details because it's going to pull us too far off track here because I really want to focus on the Jewish understanding of inheritance and, and show you some texts inside that say what I just said. But, so just very simply, there's a different threshold of evidence that's required for capital cases and for civil cases. So to be convicted of murder in a capital crime, yes, you would need two witnesses that, show, that, that demonstrate that this man actually murdered his wife or didn't or whatever. But to raise suspicion about the financial piece of it, it might be a lower threshold of evidence. But either way, in this case, 
the, 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 the laws of, Jew, from a Jewish perspective, the laws of inheritance means that it naturally flows to the next of kin, right? That her inheritance would flow to the next of kin, which either would be kids or the husband or both, whatever it is, which means, again, in Jewish law, there is a flow, no matter, even if they are convicted of murder, even if there are two witnesses, there's still a natural flow. You can't get rid of the natural flow. Again, unless, unless, it's, unless, unless there's nothing left. If somebody gives away the... Somebody gives away all their, all, all their assets before their death. There's nothing left to flow. If you turn off the water from the river, then it can't flow. But as, lo, what, as the moment a person passes away, automatically it flows to the next of kin in Jewish law. Morris. Can, can Jewish law be introduced in a civil case? I don't think so. I don't believe so. Well, this is I just... Have, yeah. Go ahead. This I have is, one other question. Yeah, sure. I, I, this is an exercise of understanding a perspective. Practically, living in the U.S. is not going to, I don't think it's going to make much of a, this is not going to make much of a dent in the system. We're not going to start going petitioning the California court saying, you know, the Menendez brothers, maybe they should get some because based on, that's not, it's not going to fly. But it's, it's an interesting perspective and, it, and there's an interesting payoff of all of this, like an inspirational payoff, which we'll get to soon. But yeah, I know you have another point. One, one other question. I didn't understand why. They had a fast before they killed this. Okay, my understanding yeah. is that this was part of Jezebel's, Ezebel's whole idea of making everyone realize that something very serious is about to come down. Like, we're holding a fast, we're having a meeting, everyone's going to get together, and at that meeting, this guy is outed as the blasphemer and the, um, and the in other words, a very dark day in the community. And to indicate the... Say it again. PR. PR, yeah, like to create, to create the mood, to create the uh, the ambiance, to to throw this charge at him. That was kind of that's my understanding of, of, of the idea. I want to share my screen with you and and read to you these few texts that speak about the inheritance like a flowing river. You see that like a flowing river. Here we go. Uh, this is from the Nachlal Yisrael, one of the classic books about inheritance from a Jewish perspective. Inheritance is different from a gift. A gift is based on the giver's consent to give, the will to give. It is the giver's choice to give it to whomever he wishes. Inheritance, by contrast, is not a gift. It is a transition which occurs naturally, regardless of the deceased's intention. That is unbelievable. It's a transition which occurs naturally regardless of the deceased's intention. The intention of the divine lawgiver, Imam, I think this is what you were saying, has been clearly expressed in that the inheritance does not flow from the degree of love and affection between the deceased and the living or similar considerations. In other words, the flow is not dependent on love or affection. Those are not, quali those are not qualifications. But from the superior right which the legal heir has to the estate of the deceased. It's natural. It's not superimposed. See, in U.S. law, in the secular way of understanding it, it's still the decision of... The, the bequeather, the one whose estate it was, it's their decision, it's their will, it's their, you know, it's, it's like a gift almost. In Jewish law, it's not a gift. It's a natural flow. It's like a river. It just, it is what it is. It just, that's the way it flows. Now, again, again, there are ways around it. If somebody really doesn't, unfortunately, doesn't want their kids to have it, so then give it away. Which means that upon death, there's nothing left. That's the way around it, right? But otherwise, if they're still in a state upon death, it's going to go to the kids or the next of kin. In Jewish law, that's the way it is. So somebody says, you know, uh, what I, the bottom line is you can't, and you can't give it, I'm sorry, one more thing. You can't give a gift 
posthumously. You can't say in a will, a Jewish law, a Jewish legal will, you wouldn't be able to say, you know, I'm going to give, you know, let's say a million dollars, 500,000 to my kids and 500,000 to the, um, to the, you know, to the, um, say, save the, well, no, Chabad is an exception. I'm kidding. No, not, I was going to use like save the whales or something. It wouldn't work. You couldn't do that. They would rip that up and give all million to the kids. Because after death, you can't give a gift. It's not yours to give. Are you with me in what I'm saying? After death, there can't be a gift. All there is is the river, the flow. The only way to do it is to write a document that says, a minute before my death, I'm giving the gift to the, the whales, the, the thing, and half a million to the whales. And then the other part, is, it, it flows with the inheritance. But you can't give a gift it may sound like semantics, but it's a very important distinction. It's critically important. Okay, um, this class sponsored by LegalZoom.com. I'm kidding. All right, uh, Donna, yeah, jump in. So your description of this flowing, it, it makes me think that it's all part of how much we are integrated into ge genealogy and the patriarchs and yes. all descendants. Correct. You know? Yeah, There's, Judaism is very much, you know, uh, about the flow of generations and next of kin. It's all, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot about that, right? And it's, it's you know, a lot of it is, is mishpacha, a lot of it is family, right? It's family, it's a family business, so to speak. So there's a lot of that. And, and the idea here is that it's not a convention. Inheritance is not a convention that the courts are setting up to allocate this and that and the other. It's just something natural. The courts are actually going to try to stay out of the way. The people are, we are you're supposed to stay out of the way. This is, it, it should flow from, from one generation to the next. That's the flow or to next of kin, wherever that is, right? It should flow naturally. If somebody wants to say, no, no. When I pass away, I'm going to give a certain amount to my kids, but then another amount is going to go somewhere else. I don't know. You can't really do that. Can't really do that. You can give a gift before you pass away, but not after. Yeah. I read about the concept of Tithing. Yeah. One is allowed to give whatever they want in their lifetime. A person can give away all their money if they want. And a person is supposed to give tzedakah. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. The question is, once they pass away, understand the distinction. When a person's alive, whatever you want, do whatever you want. Give it to your kids. Give it to the zoo. Give it wherever you want. You do whatever you want. Give it tzedakah. Give it to Chabad, Intel Jewish Academy. Absolutely. Right? First on the list. But, but, <laughs> but... After a person passes away, it's not theirs anymore. It goes to the kids. That's the point. Automatically. In Jewish law, it's a flow. That's it. Yeah, now. That's, that's yeah. what I was trying to say. It's not, it's right. not the human beings anymore. Yeah, yeah it's okay. not right. It's not, it's, not the, it's not the choice anymore. Now, again, there could be a will that says the flow should go this way. You know, a percentage here, percentage there, percentage there. But it's, but it's about the family. Now. Now, again, these are very important concepts. I want to share another, another text that also clarifies this. As soon as the person who transmits the inheritance dies, the right to the inheritance immediately rests on its heir. Thus, an uninterruptible chain of succession is forged, similar to the natural succession of parent and child created by God himself. The rightful relationship of the person who transmits the inheritance to the heir is such as if the two bodies of the two persons were joined together. And what emanates from the one immediately reaches the other. 
It's a natural flow. Therefore, our sages stress that if a person makes a testamentary disposition, that his children shall not inherit him, or if the testator makes any similar disposition which contradicts the Jewish law of inheritance, yeah, you try to write that in your will, his words do not mean anything. That's pretty strong. In other words, according to Jewish law, it has no weight and validity. Again, you live in the United States, yeah, the, the courts might, might have another, another say about that. But a will is a very, it's a, it, it, a Jewish will follows a very specific protocol. It's about a flow, it's about next of kin. Yes, there can be gifts, and it's a nice thing to give gifts, especially to worthy causes, etc. But there's a way to structure that where it's not after a person's passing, because after a person's passing, there's a different flow that takes over. It's like a natural reaction that follows a person's passing. Let's take a look at text. Yeah, Judy. This just seems so contradictory to me. It, God was so against um, what happened. He that the dogs are going to kill him, and what, he was so against it. So how could it be biblical law, which is God? Yeah. That says that it's okay to inherit. It's not only okay. So it's it's not okay or not okay. No, I understand. I, great question, but it's not about okay or not okay. In other words, it's it's not right what he did. But it's still a natural flow. It, in other words, let, thank you. You know, thank you for bringing it back to the story because let's now apply it to the story of Achav and the vineyard. Achav has his neighbor cousin killed, and his cousin and his sons are killed. There's no next of kin other than Achav himself. So what happens by the law? By the law of inheritance, there's a natural flow. There's a river. It's flowing. Where does it flow? Next of kin. Who's the next of kin? Achav. So who does a vineyard belong to? Achav automatically. You don't need a will. You don't need evidence. You don't need anything. It's a natural flow. It's Achav's. God says, "I don't like this, so I'm going to make sure this guy never enjoys it." But but there, there's two different issues. One is about the natural flow. One is, does God like it? And you're right. God doesn't like it. You're asking, if God doesn't like it, then why is there a natural flow? It's two different things. There's a natural flow, and there's God doesn't like it when a person murders to get a natural flow. I, it's two, two different issues. That, there's a commandment not to murder. Not to murder. So God doesn't want to murder. But because so a person... So God took care of that. Right. The point is that just because God doesn't like the murder doesn't mean the natural flow is interrupted. The natural flow is the natural flow. God doesn't like it. Now, now, there's another question, which we had the dispute, the machlokas, the dispute between the Arsameach and the Dvar Yeshua. According to one opinion, the Dvar Yeshua, the courts can step in and say, you know what? Not only does God not like murder, we also don't like murder. And to protect society and to disincentivize, or de uh, whatever, de-incentivize murders, we're going to actually confiscate the property. So yes, it flowed like a river, but just call us the river bandits, because at this point, we're going to walk away with the river. We're going to walk away with that and take it away from you. That's an extra measure. Like Jerry said before, that's almost, I mean, not necessarily extra legal. It's still legal, but it's um, after the river has flowed. God's not happy. The courts are also not happy. They're just going to straight up confiscate the property. But getting back to our case studies, the implication here is that the Menendez brothers, they would have inherited. Now, could the courts pull it away? Maybe. Sure. Why not? If they wanted to, if that's the law. But in U.S. law, we don't even give it to you. We say there's no inheritance. In Jewish law, there is inheritance. We may take it away, but there is inheritance because inheritance is not something that the courts grant. It's almost natural law. It's almost like can the courts, can the courts rule that, that the child doesn't have the DNA of the parent? By court ruling, there's no DNA. 
Either there is or there isn't, bro. You can't change that. It's not like the court can, can, can gavel bang and say, nope, uh, we're, we have now ruled there's no DNA connection. If there is, there is. You, you can't change that. The, a person who passes away, they have children, it's going to flow, or next of kin, it flows to them, whether we like it or not. Now, we could then seize it and confiscate it, sure, but there's the flow is the flow. I want to read to you another text or two and then wrap it up with, I think, a beautiful Jewish lesson. Rabbi yeah. Very quick question. There is not a natural flow if murders were committed. You have changed the flow. You have altered the flow by murdering. So why should you benefit? Yeah, but from stopping but the correct flow. We have different definitions of flow. Your definition of flow is not my definition of flow. Whatever you're saying has been interrupted, I would say has not been interrupted. Because what we're what I'm referring to as flow is not love. It's not kindness. It's not proper behavior. It's literally a natural reality that cannot be manufactured or broken. It cannot be broken by the act of murder. It's a, the flow is the flow. In other words, the next person, the next iteration of DNA on planet Earth, the, the, the person who has the closest DNA match on planet Earth, yeah? Yeah, typically going to be the kids or next of kin, right? Can that be changed by murder? Ah, the grandson, Elmer, murdered the grandfather, no longer has a DNA. That's not true. He literally has the DNA. Oh, now, I know, I understand what you're... Rabbi, how about an adopted child? Does not have the same legal, the same legal rights. Rabbi. By the way, once, wait, you know, one second, this is a great question. Once, sorry for the One second. Morris is asking an excellent question. That's very important. I'm going to say it very quickly. Adopted child could not inherit by these laws. Would have to receive it as a gift. It would have to be structured uh -huh. as a gift. It would have to be structured as a gift because it wouldn't flow naturally, even though that's not to take away any of the bond. But there's the, what we're referring to is literally it's, it's literally a DNA connection. It's not a judgment. It's, it's not a judgment connection. It's not about you could have somebody who's estranged and, 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 and but DNA and someone who's loved and not DNA. The Nachala inheritance is the DNA connection. That's literally what we're talking about is the DNA connection. That's why, Mark, to your question, the murder doesn't change that. You say, no, the murder does change that. It interrupts the flow because that life was ended. It doesn't matter. I mean, I mean obviously it does matter, but in this context, it doesn't matter. Bottom line is who, sh who has that DNA? Who carries the DNA, right? Who has the closest DNA? It is what it is, right? Now, the, the rabbis didn't speak in language of DNA, but they spoke in language of next of kin. Adina Maka, jump in. Oh, that's why Israel is our land. That's oh. Land us. Good, good, good. Hold on, hold on. I'm going to bring it back to Torah and Israel in a moment. All right, hold on. Time out. Let's do another text or two. and Give me another two minutes. We're going to wrap this up. Okay, very quickly. Take a look at this. This leads us to an, the following interesting law. An heir cannot, this is Tosvot, an heir cannot forego his right to an inheritance in order to reject the claim of a debtor of his father, right? Imagine a dad owes, owes a lot of money, and the dad passes away, right? And now the child's like, I don't want the money, because if I get the money, then they're going to come after me. You can't refuse it. You can't forgo the right to inheritance in order to reject the claim of the debtor to his father. Why? Because the inheritance and the debt, it just flows naturally. It's a, you, can't, you can't stop it. It's a natural flow. That's the point of the Jewish the Jewish idea. 
And moreover, it's not only a flow downward, it's actually also a flow upward, where the child, if you are next of kin, actually takes the place of the parent, actually goes back. It's not just that it flows to the next generation, but it's almost like the other one goes in the original one's place. This is from Psalms, in place of your fathers will be your sons. You see that? It's not that the, it flows from father to son, but the son almost descends to the place of the father. It's a bit of a nuance, but there's almost a depth over here. Okay? Uh, and we also have this here. The Raga Trevor says, um, a gift or sale consists of a transition from one domain of ownership to another domain of ownership. But inheritance means that the next generation moves into the domain of the parent. Nothing moves. It doesn't transfer. It's the actual child takes the place of the parent. So it's almost like the estate stays where it is. This is a very uniquely Jewish way of understanding estate law and inheritance law. It's not that the estate flows. I know I've been using the word flow, but now we're going even deeper. It's not even so much that the estate flows from parent to child. It's that the estate stays where it is. That the child takes the place of the parent. Does that make sense? Okay, so thus, thus, there's a natural, inherent, divine connection of inheritance. It just is what it is, which is why Jewish law has a radically different take on the laws of inheritance. Whereas U.S. law says, of course there's no inheritance. I mean, now we say, of course there's no inheritance. It doesn't flow. It doesn't transfer. It gets blocked right away. Jewish law would say, no, it flows because you can't not, it can't not flow. Oh, what do you mean it flows? There's no question if it flows or not. It literally flows. The only question is, now will the courts confiscate it? Sure, it makes, makes sense to me. I'm a Dvar Yeshua guy. Yeah, the courts should confiscate it. Don't let this guy profit off it. Confiscate it. De 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 disincentivize it, right? Absolutely, call it a vote. That's, that's a smart approach. But does it flow? Sure, it flows, which is radically different than, 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 than U.S. law. And here's the spiritual payoff. Final text, here we go. Text 10 from Deuteronomy. The Torah which Moshe commanded us is an inheritance to the congregation of Jacob. This indicates that Torah is to us as an inheritance. What does that mean? What does it mean? What it means is that it's not something that we need to buy or we need to acquire. We need to somehow finagle. I got the Torah somehow. You kidding me? You and I? You and I, it's our Torah naturally. Torah is called a Yerusha. Torah is called an inheritance. And by virtue of the fact that it's called an inheritance, that means that every single one of us has an inherent, an inherent unbroken connection to Torah. Right? It's a DNA connection to Torah. No matter how much we've learned or how much we've studied, how much opportunities we've had or, or, or not, it, it's irrelevant. It's ours. It's like, a, it's like even a baby inherits, right? A child, a small child that doesn't understand the, the meaning of an estate in Jewish law inherits everything right away. It's, it is what it is. It's natural. All of us here have inherited the Torah, the full thing 100%. Now it's up to, we have the opportunity to unpack the gift. Imagine you got an inheritance. Imagine you got a 10, imagine, a $10 million inheritance. Yeah? Would you not want to like uh, unpack it? Imagine you got, imagine physically, you would probably want to take a look and see what it is. Now I told you, you got something worth more than, than all the money in the world. You got Torah as your inheritance. Yeah? So unpack it, dust it off a little bit, check it out, see what you got. Imagine. We're all wealthy. We're wealthy beyond measure. But here's the point don't just sit on your wealth. 
Examine it, explore it, take it out, air it, air it out a little bit. Imagine someone said, part of the estate is a garage full of cars, classic cars. Like, whoa, I wonder what's there. You would go to the garage, open it up. Oh, a 57 Chevy and a, I'm making up cars. I don't know cars. A 67 Camaro. I don't know if that's a thing, right? You would start, you go, oh my gosh, this is great. These deals, you would turn it on. You would drive it around the block. You would, you know, take, oh, look at me. I got these cars. Take Torah out for a spin. It's a good thing. And, and I know we're all literally studying Torah tonight, so you're doing it. But I just want to encourage you to keep on doing it because it's the inheritance. It's ours. We don't have to acquire it. No one can block it. It's literally ours. It's literally ours. All right. So let's, let's summarize today's session. Um, today's session, we talked about the laws. We talked about true crime cases and the laws of inheritance. And we essentially said that according to U.S. law, it seems very straightforward. Someone commits a crime, they are not going to inherit the estate. They're not going <laughs> to, of course not, obviously not, right? In Jewish law, they would. And we said, why? Because inheritance is not something that we apply, that we decided. It's literally natural. It's like, is there a child? Yeah. I mean, if there is, right? Is there a child? Yeah. Okay. The court can't stop that. Oh, there's no child. There literally is a child or next of kin. So that's, that's what happens. So it flows. The only question that remains is whether the court is going to subsequently, you know, repossess it. You know, is it subsequent, the court subsequently going to take it away and, and confiscate it? And that's a, that's a subject to debate. But either way, according to both opinions, all opinions, a inheritance is a natural flow. And, and, and this leads me to the final point, and I know I'm going over time here a little bit, so please indulge me for another 30 seconds. And I mentioned this parenthetically, but this is going to be the opening for next week's session. How, to what extent do the courts want to step in? In U.S. law, the courts almost create the law. In Jewish law, the law responds to natural reality. At least that's the way that Jewish law sees itself. Not imposing the law, but responding to the reality. So when it comes to this situation, the reality is there's an inheritor because inheritance is next to, it just is what it is. The courts may then confiscate it, but that's, that's, that's maybe something afterwards. But the court cannot stop the inheritance from flowing. That can't, that's not a thing. That's not a thing that's within power. Nor can anyone stop us from our receiving the inheritance, from receiving the inheritance of of, uh, of the Torah. All right, that's it for today. And I'll stay on for another few minutes for Q&A. I see some stuff in the chat as well, which we'll get to. But let me tell you about next week's class, and then we're going to formally close it out and allow everyone to go. So next week is called The Accidental Treasure. And the question on the table is going to be, let's say you purchase a new home, and you decide to do some renovations on the home. And as they're breaking down some walls, Suddenly, a treasure is discovered in the walls. The question is, who keeps the treasure? <laughs> who keeps the treasure? Let's say you... Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Yes, you could say that, but here's the question. You ready? Three questions. Does it belong to the finder? Let's say to the, the construction worker who found it. Does it belong, I'm going to give you scenarios, right? Does it belong to the owner of the construction company? Does it belong to the new owner of the house? Does it belong to the previous owner of the house who just sold it? Does it belong to the party who left it there originally? 
These are the questions we're going to deal with next week. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers may be true, but this is a very complicated case. We're going to look at this both from the perspective of U.S. law and Jewish law and once again walk away with hopefully some eye-opening ideas. And of course, you'll have a chance to weigh in. We'll have some more polls next week so you can be the judge. All right. I may have dated myself, Rabbi. No, I, well, we said that. We said that. Really? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we said that all the time. I still say that. I still say that to my kids. I'm kidding. I don't. Um, yes. Robert. Good study. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Morris. Yes. Thank you for being here. This is excellent. I have three questions. Though, yes. Harry. Okay. Okay. First of all, I'll start from the from the the first one I wrote down. Is there, in the, according to the laws of Jewish inheritance, is there a difference between possessions and money and land no okay and okay then this I, i'm gonna i'm gonna skip the middle question because it's a little bit philosophical and i'm just gonna go down to my the last question is is a child is a child considered an inheritance in cases of custody for example a no. man killed his wife does he get custody of the kid? Custody is not an inheritance, no. Okay. No. All right. No. This is talking about property. Yeah, yeah, no. It's okay. talking about it's talking about definitely uh, monetary possessions, not people. People okay. are not owned by people are not owned by anybody. It's a different it's a different context. We're talking here about possessions in the sense of of ownership. And the, the big idea here is that in Judaism, when it comes to inheritance, the ultimate idea that we express is that it doesn't actually transfer. The, the property doesn't transfer, it's the next of kin assumes that place of the, of the deceased. And, and that's, that's the big idea of this class. A person would not be privy to that because a person is not owned by, not owned by the parents. In ancient oh, okay. Roman law, they looked at it, I mean, whatever, but we don't, no, that's, that's not a thing. As far as practically who has custody, uh, the courts will determine who's the best, um, who's the best person to take care of this child. And I, I would not imagine that in any in any scenario, that would be the, the murderer dad. That does not, yeah, that, that wouldn't make sense. Okay. Does it matter if it goes to male or female, if they're only daughters? No, 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 uh, females, females as well. Yeah, for sure. That we have the biblical case of Tzalafchad's daughters. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, oh, but what about having the daughter's possessions go to their, how does that work? What do you mean? Well... Well, if a, if a, if the daughter has an estate, does she have the like her children get from her? Is it natural? Is that the natural yeah yeah yeah? It would still be the natural flow for sure. Uh oh, and so it applies the other yeah way too. yeah yeah absolutely for sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Judy. Rabbi, is this like um, a modified and updated course that was many years ago? Uh, you be the judge, and is that the book that you were, because I took it, I mean, this is a long time ago. Um, this case didn't seem familiar, but when you talked about next week, that seemed familiar. There, there's, a the there's a few courses that we that have, JLI, like few uh -huh. courses that have touched on this. It right. may be similar, maybe different. There's because there's uh -huh. it's it's a topic that's been covered a in a few bit, different yeah. a little bit here a little bit there, but I yeah. think uh, it, there might be enough new stuff that it won't oh, be as familiar as no, it may sound. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's no question. yeah. We did a case 
You might recall a few years ago, there was another JLA course that talked about somebody who found a pearl in a restaurant, on the floor of a restaurant. Right. Right. And the question was, can they keep the pearl in the restaurant, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, or, or do we say it belongs to the restaurant? If the restaurant owner didn't even know it, let's say another patron dropped it, right? Let's say they dropped a diamond a, a ring, right, uh, or a pearl. And they try to find the owner, and, and a patron, a, a restaurant a customer finds it. So the question is, who gets to keep it? Straight up. The finder, the restaurant, or the original owner. But what if you can't find the original owner? I mean, anyway, so it's a sim these are similar cases, yeah. but yeah. Uh, stay Very tuned. Yeah. Um, wasn't it the case of a pearl and an oyster? Um, I, it might have been. You're right. Yeah, I think I remember that. It might have been that she was eating an oyster. And she, yeah. Uh, well, no, 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 no. No we, had, no, we had two cases. We had two cases. One is where there was... The pearl and the oyster, and one was on the floor. Adina Malka, jump in. Yeah, today I came home from the grocery store. I found two cans of wild caught tuna and a, 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 some a hand soap pump. Now, I didn't pay for them. I can't find the owner. Are they mine? Do I just bring them back to Kroger? I mean, I really was thinking about that today. I, I would. It's a good question. I would bring it back to the store just because uh, it seems like it's not really finders keepers. It's more like uh, an error. That's more along the lines of that's more line, along the lines of um, if somebody by accident, you know, would give, gives gives their suit to the dry cleaners by accident. There's a hundred dollar bill in the in the jacket pocket, right? You know, oh, you know what? I, I forgot to start this class with a joke, so might as well do it now at the end. So this, uh, the businessman walks into the university to give a class, to give a lecture about business and ethics and whatever it is. And he says, I'll tell you an ethical question that comes up in business, right? So imagine, so let's say you have a dry cleaner's business and a customer walks in, gives the suit and you're going through the suit, you know, just checking the pockets and you find the hundred dollar bill. So here's the ethical question, right? Right. What do you do? Do you keep it all for yourself or do you also tell your partner? I mean, that's the question, right? That's the, <laughs> that's the ethical question in business. I'm kidding. But in this case, I think it would be, uh, I think, I think uh, return it to the, to the store would be the right way to go. That's what I thought. This tuna yeah. salad will not taste good. That, it won't. No. It's, <laughs> if it wasn't on your receipt, then you didn't pay for it. Then you didn't pay for it. Haratzachta begam yirashta. Ay, ay, ay. No way. So say keep it. Kroger might charge you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get into politics of uh, gross. Well, is gonna take it anyway. That's it. Donna, jump in. I had two quick comments. Um, when you when we were discussing that Jewish law would not be applicable in American courts, I thought of maybe one one uh, scenario. I mean, it wouldn't be binding, but it may play a role. Let's, because jury of our peers. So let's say there was a case like in Borough Park, you know. So where all the jurors are Orthodox Jews, so then there one of the, the one of the attorneys might share some insights. Right, right. A Jewish law. Yeah. And, and also just to add on to that, because I should have qualified it, if all the parties are, are cool with going to a bet din, to a Jewish court, it, it's, it's possible, and it's happened before, that secular courts will, you know, if all the parties involved want to just take care of it in rabbinic court, that's fine also with the secular courts, as long as everyone signs an agreement. But what I was, I think what I was referring to then specifically, at least in my head, was in the case of murder, 
the U.S. courts are not going to go by Jewish law and say, yeah, the murderer accepts. Even if a, a Jewish lawyer, Jew, even if the parties say, even if the community says we're going to handle it on our own, the state has an interest in, in disincentivizing murder. The state's going to get involved and say, no inheritance, not happening. Jewish law from today to tomorrow, it's not happening. In monetary, in other cases, you know, two, two Jewish businessmen have a dispute, business people have a dispute. They can handle it on their own through a bet that it happens all the time in Borough Park and Flatbush and it happens all the time. So you are correct. But I was, in my head, I was thinking about the murder case that we started. That would not, uh, there's no way, there's no way to overrule that. I don't believe there would be any scenario where the state would, would turn a blind eye to the Slayer's Law and, and, and allow a murderer to inherit because that's what that community does. I don't think any scenario allows that. One more thing, yeah. So when you were, we were talking about the uh, big game hunters, that made me think of our Torah study yesterday. You know, we're, we're not supposed to murder animals uh, you know, for our own... For sport, yeah. yeah. Correct, correct. That is, a, um, that is an implication, but of course, you know, either way, no one... It's, it's, it's horrific, absolutely horrific what happened. All right, mom. Yeah. I had a call from the cleaner, and uh, there was a tidy sum of money in my husband's pocket, and I came and I got it. Now, should I have told him? Oh. <laughs> Good. Good. I'll tell you I didn't. Good. Doreen. I don't know. Finders keepers. Finders keepers. Whoever answered the call gets the cash. That's it. Excellent. All right. That's hilarious. Doreen, you're hilarious. All right. And mom, final word, and then we're going to close it out. Yeah, I just want to say, we could deal with it next week, but there is a case, there is a, it has nothing to do with inheritance, it has to do with divorce laws, where in New York State, I don't know if it's, it, it passed, I think it did, that there has to be a law that um, that if the two, if the two parties agree, wait, not that it has to be, if there is a case where the, the uh, it, it's get law. It's divorce law. Jewish divorce law. I'll, I'll research it. I'll talk about it. We, I mean, you can talk about it next week. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Good. Where the civil courts do do honor Jewish. They law. honor Jewish law. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, there are cases, monetary cases, where that happens. Again, the exception. What I was thinking is, when it comes to murder, there's no way that anyone is going to inherit just because that community thinks that it's, uh, you know, e and even rabbinically, they're going to confiscate it anyway. So there's, it really doesn't make a difference at the end of the day. All right. Great to see you all. I hope you enjoyed it. Quick question before you go. Yes. Quick question. Quick. Maybe, maybe Dina shouldn't return the tuna. It occurs to me in these days of COVID, if she returns it, they'll have to throw it out. I would call the store up. Call up the yeah. store and ask them, what should I do? Maybe they're going to say, we don't want it, in which case they've given it to you as a gift. If they say, bring it back, well, then you know what to do. Right. And you know so what to I'm do. I'm going to bring it back. Uh, I'm going to bring back the three items and just show that I didn't pay for it. It was in my bag. Yeah. You take it. I don't want, I don't want it taking up headspace. Yeah, no headspace. <laughs> good. All right. But listen, the good news is Mark wants you to enjoy the tune also. So that's, that's a true friend. A true friend is also, he's looking out for you as well. He's, maybe there's a way that you can still enjoy it guilt-free. All right. Maybe. I'll tell you to keep it. Maybe that cover will tell you to keep it. That's, that's what Mark is saying. The final question. Is it kosher tuna? Ah. Uh, 
Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, that's another question. That's, uh, that's another question. All right. Yes, there you go. All right. We'll see you all. Have a good night. Lila Tov, everybody. We'll see you. Pleasure. We'll see you next week. Take care.